The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, Chief Storymaker at Elkins Consulting. If you've been listening to this podcast over the years, you know that it has shifted and people have come and gone from this wonderful conversation. And I'm so honored to hold the stories of so many guests. You also know that the word authenticity holds a lot of power for me, not because I think it's so important, but because I think people misunderstand what authenticity really is. And today, you get to hear a wonderful conversation. You will meet Amir Fatizadeh, and I met him through the Narrative 4 group that I had a great um, author talk conversation with a group from that organization. And if you haven't yet looked up Narrative 4, please do. You will not regret finding out more about this organization. Also, for our listeners, if you are interviewing for jobs, our new course, Get Hired Job Interview Storytelling, is available at elkinsconsulting.com. Amir, thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And uh, I just keep thinking about the first question that somebody asked, which is, how did I decide which story to share at the beginning of our conversation at the um, Q&A after you and your group had read my book? And I said, well, there was so much warmth in the room. I didn't want to use a story that didn't really demonstrate that comfort that I felt. And I mentioned your smile at the beginning of that conversation because you have such a warmth about you. So I've, I'm honored to hold some of your stories in the next few minutes of our conversation. Well, and thank you so much. I was so looking forward to meeting you the other day in that, you know, in that meeting. And I'm so glad to have the opportunity to actually be on your podcast. So I'm, I'm really delighted. Excellent. Well, um, you know how this starts. I would love for you to share with me and with the rest of our listeners a little something about yourself that most people don't know about you. What do you think? Well, there are a few things, but I think one that might actually make a difference for you know your audience might be the story of when I was, I believe, about eight or nine years old. And uh, I was with my family vacationing in a you know a part of the country that was considered holy city, and. Uh, um, my and my cousins were with me. My aunts were with me. We went uh, out all together uh, to to the market. It was a very crowded city. Uh, my family and uh, all went into a sewing store. You know, my mother and my aunts and all the ladies in the family were all in sewing, doing you know different kind of sewing, and. Um, when we came out of the store, I found myself lost. Huh. And Tell me which city this was. I'm sorry? Which city? Oh, this the, the, the name of the city was called Mashhad. This is in a city in um, the northeast of uh, Iran. Oh, okay. And, uh, 
yeah, so for for eight or nine year old, you know, uh, child, you know, being lost in a crowded city was a uh, was pretty scary. So I started um, crying and you know didn't know which way to go. Um, people started to gather around me and kind of you know asking. You know, where are your parents? You know, where do you live? And I had no idea. So, officer and this gentleman, you know, walks in, in you know, in the crowd, and he had a green turban uh, on his, you know, his head and a long, you know, kind of a, you know, coat, and he says, "Come with me. I'll take you home." Something inside me said to trust this guy and just go with him. And I just hold his hand. He walked me to the house. And my oldest brother and my grandma were still home. They were going to join us later. So I knock on the, the door and my brother opened the door and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I got lost, and this man brought me home. And so he, you know, puts his head out. No one is there. And since then, it had an amazing, you know, profound impact on me to have a different relationship with fate. Even though during my um, college years, I won. I went into denying any type of faith and religion and became interested in finding out details of why people believe or don't believe. But somehow I went back to it and I you know, became a pretty uh, faithful uh, person. And uh, since then, it's just, uh, you know, my life has really altered because in the situations that I feel I don't know which way to go or seek. The answers come to me. And I, I put myself in that position and think about that, you know, that moment. And it, it's, it's interesting and it's metaphor at the same time. And I really don't have a specific, you know, answers for it. But well, there there isn't it. I mean, that's, the whole thing about faith and fate, right? Is that there are no explanations that that fit exactly into that. I have to tell you, as you were telling the story and your brother looked outside the door, I I got a chill up the back of my neck. I felt all of those hairs go up and I felt kind of a sense of warmth knowing that he wasn't going to see the man in the green turban. Somehow I knew that that's where the story was going. Wow. That's so great. Yeah. So you, you, I think part of it is that as you told the story, I was there with you, the way you described where you were and that the color of the turban mattered and the coat because you were right back there. You were imagining this man who still has, a, a, holds a visual image in your head many decades later, which is kind of amazing and that's exactly what stories are about when they connect us like that yes absolutely you know i 
I do lots of coaching. And, uh, you know, uh, as you well know more than anyone else, uh, perhaps when you are coaching, you really have to be in deep listening and putting, you know, uh, myself in the other person's uh, uh, shoes to really get their world. And sometimes I, you know, just ask which way will be most productive or, or best way to route this. Uh, because in coaching, it's not, you know, to, to really don't have a specific, you know, directions to go, and it's just all inquiry. And it's amazing. Something always comes to me when I, when I put myself there and always have the answer. And my coaching has been very successful. Uh, when you think about um, your approach to coaching, do you think about that deep listening as part of being open to that intuition and faith and and bringing that to your client? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, of course it is, you know, in, indirectly. And, uh, you know, and, um, I, I never speak about, you know, uh, the faith or intuition or the approach, uh, you know, uh, I use. And it is, it is one of those things that, you know, that comes, I think, with experience, with believing, you know, especially believing in the in clients and really getting what they're dealing with uh, and uh, being able to just really feel what they're going through. And uh, the moment I can feel the pain, I seem to have directions which way to direct the, uh, the client. Mm -hmm. uh, it is very rewarding. Uh, it is. So tell me, tell me about um, a particular conversation you had with a client where there was that moment of enlightenment where you could see it. You could see the wheels turning. And maybe they didn't know at that moment. They usually don't. But you know that over the next 48 hours or two weeks, that person is going to have a breakthrough, even if they didn't realize it at the time of the conversation. And you're nodding because you already have a client in your head. So tell me that story. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I, let me see. I have I have long and short story. Let me share this one with you because it is in this uh, country. I was uh, working with a uh, client, a black gentleman, um, who barely spoke during the whole, you know, uh, meeting, but he was absorbing and listening. And what he was dealing with was all his life, he's been in and out of prison, and he couldn't get along with any white people. And, you know, he always in fights, arguments uh, with his bosses, going to jail, out of jail, and, and so on, and was 50 year, 58 years old. So when I really got into his world and I had him go back to the childhood and let's distinguish and see what has captured you that uh, you cannot see is a blind spot. 
And uh, so when he started actually sharing, after I described to him the process of how we're going to do this, all of a sudden his face just lighted up and tears started to roll down his cheeks. And he says, oh, my God, when I was eight years old, you know, I, you know, um, I lived with my parents in Detroit. And um, in Detroit, as you know, you know, about half, 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 you know, um, African-American black people and half white people. And he says, my father was uh, transferred from one side of the city to the other side. So I was forced to go to a white school. And before that, I was going to black school. I guess those days they had that. And he said, the first day on the class, the teacher said, you are so black that we can't write on you. He said, that moment, I, you know, I said to myself, I hate these people. I never will get, get along with them. I never want to be friends with them. So he distinguished that at the ideal eight-year-old boy, he made his story, an interpretation of what the teacher said. And he carried that story for the 50, for 50 years. <clears throat> so 50 years of hating white people, not being able to get on, along with them, getting in fights, going to jail. At 58, he freed up because he was captured inside this, I'll call it cocoon. You know, it just, you know, just, and protection. His brain was protecting him. Exactly. And he had enough stories, evidence, witnesses, you name it, to justify being right about what happened when he was eight. So him being able to free up and express it to me that I have love and passion for all people. That was probably the best and biggest reward I could receive from any client. So this is this is in a way short example of uh, you know working with a client, being able to see something for themselves that they couldn't see before, and when they see it. Something new opens up, a new possibility opens up. You know, you talk about authenticity quite a bit, bad, which I love. You know, you know, the authenticity, and I and so this authenticity actually fits very nicely in this story, because for fifty years he was he's been pretending, based on that story. So when. When you're authentic, there is no pretense. There is no attachment. This is to know who you are. You just you you're free to talk, you're free to express, you're free to be yourself. And I think that's what showed up. You went from pretense to being fully authentic and for himself, see something that opened up a new channel. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And, and the process, I think, is so critical to be able to unlock that experience because we know that our brain will fixate and see only what it what will confirm its bias. It, as long as we're not aware, that's what our brains do. It's totally natural. And thinking about that young boy and the teacher and what they said, it just makes me angry. And I wasn't there. I don't know this man. I only know the story told by you, whom I just met, and I'm angry for him. And at the same time, I'm thinking about the story that he has held onto and consciously ignored any evidence that white people could be his friend, that anyone outside of his circle could actually care about him and want him to succeed. He he wouldn't ever see that because his, his brain was protecting him and saying, oh, if you want to survive, you can't be friends with people who are a threat to you and all white people are a threat to you. And I guess part of Part of what just popped into my head also is a, a recent story of um, a teacher in Florida in high school that told a Jewish student when she was, I don't know, misbehaving, doing something that the teacher didn't like. She told her, you don't shape up, I'm going to send you back to Auschwitz. Wow. She, a teacher. This is recent. Yeah. Wow. And you think about this poor man who's 58 and his his 50 years of holding on to that. What is this young student going to hold on to exactly. in terms of anti-Semitism and this whole idea that that it's okay? Nothing's happened to the teacher. They've done nothing. The administration has done nothing about it. And it was students who reported her, not the student that was insulted, but the students around her are the ones that reported the teacher, and nothing's been done. Wow. So here we are 50 years later, and we're still having the same conversation. <laughs> it is oh, very sad. Very sad. Yeah. I, I think it's so important, though, that you bring up this story from this childhood that I think we all have stories from our childhoods that are similar that have affected us for our whole lives and until we can uncover that origin story which there may be multiple origin stories but if we uncover one and then we start to see patterns of more that's when the real change can happen right yes ab absolutely i have a seven-year-old uh, granddaughter one of, one of the you know a few grandkids that I have, and she is uh, you know, absolutely just marvelous. You know, she we love being around her. You know, we see her quite often, and always encourage the parents to make sure she does not experience anything that's shocking to her, because those incidents at this age. She's gonna make it, you know, um, a story about it, an interpretation about it. But, you know, childs, you know, see everything as the truth. And uh, when something happens that is drastic, that is unfortunate or unhappy, 
they blame themselves for you know for what has happened without realizing it and carried it you know carrying it on for a long period of time until they distinguish it and sometimes they do not and uh, it, it is uh, so important that you know the the level of love that goes in raising a child and what they deal with especially communication you know, among the parents and the family, <laughs> how they deal with challenges that's, that come up uh, is so important. And once uh, I believe, and I, actually that's what I, gave me the passion to become um, a couples coach and, you know, started coaching couples and especially in communication and relationships to ensure that type of communication that you're gonna have you know doesn't have the you know a severe impact that might have on the children because this children gonna carry it with them and it's gonna impact the quality of their lives well you said something that um made me a little uncomfortable you said something about the parents trying to protect her from having things that might shock her happen and that that got me a little uncomfortable because we can't and i'm not sure it's a great idea to protect our children from uncomfortable situations um partly because then how do we deal with that discomfort as we age if we don't experience it in a place where we have the support to deal with it um but then you came around to say making sure that they are in a place where they have clear communication and loving communication and that part is critical because you can't protect your children from situations i can tell you there were many years where i had awful relationships with people at school like seventh grade i came home every day from school crying because girls were so mean so there's no way my mom can protect me from that it's just going to happen but i love that you then turned around and said these things are going to happen and we just need to make sure we have open lines of communication that our children can talk to us about the feelings that they have the experiences they're having and that we are modeling which is why you got into couples coaching is that we are modeling what we want to see in our children yeah, absolutely. I think you, you said it beautifully. Um, you know, the externalities, you know, we cannot control. But what gets created in a household, you know, we, we can. And that comes from, you know, the you know appropriate and proper uh, communication mm -hmm. and relationship that gets created because we are the role model. Even though as parents, we don't have a manual, but we can we can we can learn and create, you know, the, the type of parenting that a child needs to grow up to to be self confident and become a become a productive member of the society. Uh, which um, you know, these days when we look around, oh my gosh! I mean, you see all type of people that have grown up probably of their. Um, you know, uh, either mistreated childhood or something that happened or the way they were raised in their 
family, they don't necessarily have the type of, you know, um, self-confidence, freedom, self-expression, you know, and the type of life that they, that they, they could have. And, it, you know. They don't have the tools help. as adults because they weren't modeled for them as children. Yeah, I, I see that a lot. And I also see that, again, the reason that was like, what do you mean protect her from shock? <laughs> That's impossible. Um, the reason that that caught my attention is that when my younger son was a freshman in college in Missoula, which is two hours from us here in Helena and Montana, um, I ran into a couple of students in, in Helena, my little town, up hiking on the mountain where I hike a lot. And they are a couple years older than my son. I said, oh, yes, I have a son in school there. And we started visiting. And and I said, tell me, you know, I keep hearing about these um, helicopter parents that are actually calling the teachers, calling the administration on behalf of their college students to complain about a grade or whatever. I said, is it really that bad? And sh they just laughed. They're like, it's worse. We don't even call it helicoptering anymore. We call it snowplows or lawnmowers because they remove any possible obstacles for their children so that they can go through whatever they're experiencing with without any obstacles. And I said, how's that working? How, tell me about that. And one of them said she had been downstairs in the laundry room of her dorm and saw the mother of one of their students doing his laundry for him. And huh the laundry room of the dormitories at college. And so when you said that we need to protect them from shock, I thought, oh my gosh, we have to not protect them from shock. <laughs> but at the same time, um, again, it, we have to come back to this whole idea of this is going to happen. We can't protect it externally from what's going to happen. But internally, if they can talk to us, if that young man had been able to express what he had experienced in school, where his parents could have understood better what he had just experienced, and to be able to talk about it and even bring it up years later and say, do you remember when this happened? You know, because I, I do that with our children. Do you do that with your children where you kind of uncover where certain behaviors might have come from because you have a different idea about the story, different perspective about what they experienced? Um, when my children uh, grew up, I I wasn't fully in this kind of uh, uh, conversation. I was doing different type of things. I did not have those kind of conversation then. But as I became involved with this type of uh, work about 25 years ago or so, 26 years ago, yes, I, you know, I often had conversations uh, uh, with them and try to provide coaching as necessary, um, especially, you know, a couple of them have, I have three children. Uh, two of them have dealt with some, you know, pretty uh, serious medical uh, situation throughout, you know, their lives. And they have experienced some stuff that, you know, majority of kids don't you know, doing experience uh, and, you know, being able to provide the support and, 
the type of parenting and coaching is really necessary that they don't feel they're alone or they are different than the rest of you know uh, society. Um, so uh, yes, I provide on regular basis as much as I can, especially you know I cannot enforce. You know, right? They're adults. Yes. <laughs> but if they, you know, they, they seek it and they don't ask for it, uh, absolutely, I, 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 I love doing that. Mm, that's wonderful. So I'd like to come full circle uh, into the, your work with Narrative Four, and um, listeners, if you uh, hadn't listened to my episode with Lee Keylock who works with Narrative 4 and the reason I was introduced to Amir. If you haven't listened to the episode with him on on this podcast, I highly recommend you go back to that one and listen to it because it's really extraordinary. And, and he explained some of how he got started with Narrative 4. So let's, again, I'd love to hear this. I'd love to hear your um, story of what you do with Narrative 4. So. In other words, tell me what you do without telling me what you do. Um, very good. I am uh, one of the uh, trainers um, and facilitators. And what we do is uh, basically uh, Narrative 4 brings uh, groups of people together. Yesterday, uh, we did um, uh, one for Breast Cancer Society. It's uh, amazing people who are devoted to research, you know, on breast cancer and uh, uh, come up with, uh, you know, the, the solutions. So there, uh, we had, I believe, about 40, uh, 40 people, um, and uh, there was several of us that led, including Lee. Lee has actually started. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we do is we, we present them, you know, with the uh, slides to tell them what this is about. And then we put them in pairs. And in pairs, in pairs, you know, um, let's say you and I, I get to share a story of my life and uh, that has impacted me, has made a difference. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a positive. It could be, you know, any kind of, it could be funny, it could be sad. And then I share my story about four or five minutes and then you listen keenly without interrupting. And then when I'm done, you get to ask me questions, clarifying questions to make sure you got you know, the story. It doesn't have to be exactly, as long as you got my world, that that is good enough. Then I listen to yours and you know, the repeat. And then when we, we come in the back in the group and each person gets to share the partner story. For example, if I'm to share yours, you know, it's my turn, I'll say, uh, my name is Sarah Elkins, and this is my story, and I share your story. So what happens here is amazing, as uh, Lee has uh, you know, described in you know, his podcast with you, people arise from a, a different space as they you know, put their views aside, their beliefs aside, and completely put themselves in another person's shoes. Empathy, 
compassion, love, just arises. And you see people who might have not got along before or have an understanding of each other, often them become much closer. They create a new relationship. And that is the beauty of it. And narrative four is so um, committed to, you know, to have this in all the schools, with all the teachers, all the students. And if we can really empower our, you know, young people to become really, you know, self, you know, confident, uh, have power, read what they want in life, become leaders of our, you know, society. And I truly believe if this work was done around the world with everyone, we wouldn't have all the mess we deal with. I mean, people are killing people or just because they've been right of whatever justification that they might have. People not getting along with each other. Or some simply something that happened or, you know, somebody says something that they don't like, and it goes on days, hours, months. And in my cousin's uh, case, he went on for 14 years, not speaking to his mother or his sister. I, I mean, the, the world is so, um, really, you know, small, short, that, you know, we have no idea if there is going to be a tomorrow. And I think narrative four, makes it like, you know, if you were to able, able to tell your story and the other person got it and the other person got it and everybody in the world get each other, look at what kind of world it would be. Mm -hmm. I promise it would be so peaceful, so loving, so people can actually get along with each other. Well, but it, there's such a desperate need for connection, real connection, and not based on political affiliation or fandom of, although sometimes being a fan of, a, a, say, a sports team or a particular TV show can bring you very similar um, feelings of connection that, that are necessary. It seems to me that what these story exchange events do, and, and for our listeners, Amir was describing that um, when we pair up and they one person tells a story, the other person tells the person the story, as they come back together as a group, that you're telling the story of your partner as if it happened to you from the first person. So that's what Amir was saying. I'm Sarah Elkins and this is my story. So um, what it absolutely does is it, it leaves you with this sense of responsibility for holding this person's story in a way that is sacred yes. and and i think that's the power of it is that the gravity of it they realize that this is something that really happened to the person in front of me and i just i keep coming back to the idea of doing this kind of thing in in legislative session you know where all these Congress people are together trying to make policy and make decisions that are supposed to represent their whole uh, community or state. And this lack of compassion, this, this lack of care for each other can be 
so changed with a simple event like a story exchange, which is not simple, but it appears to be simple. And I love that you're facilitating these conversations, especially alongside Lee and the others that I met in that um, author Q&A a few weeks back. I love that. And it, it's so powerful. It's so critical. So tell me about one moment as we come to wrap this up. Tell me about a specific moment where you saw, just like you did with your client who realized this is the origin story of my my self-protection against people that would harm me. Um, tell me one about uh, one of the story exchanges that you helped facilitate where you saw that light bulb come on. And the reason I'm asking this is because I didn't know that this was a thing, this story exchange thing. When I did something similar years ago, it was probably 20 early, it was early 2020, where uh, I was together with a uh, the student leaders of a federal organization called TRIO, which is for um, generally first-generation college students on college campuses across the country. And this was Montana-based. And I grouped people into TRIOs, and I made sure they weren't with people they knew. And these are students between 18 and 40 that are taking on leadership roles within the TRIO communities on their campuses. And one group was... Um, two young white women students and one Native American woman student, all roughly the same age, probably early 20s. And I grouped them into threes because one is the active listener, one is the storyteller, and the other is the observer. So they can actually watch what's going on between the other two. And they take turns. Each one gets to play that each role at some point over the course of about 12, 15 minutes. And I will never forget this moment when the Native American woman said, I, I said, were there any surprises here? As we're debriefing our conversations, were there any surprises here? And the Native American woman said, here I am sitting with this white girl that I didn't think could possibly have any understanding of what I go through. And she told me her story and we're so similar. We went through really similar things and I just never would have known that if we hadn't done this. And yeah. And she was kind of abrupt in the way that she presented this, which I loved because it meant that she had, she felt safe to say what she said. And so this is just one of these many experiences that I keep coming back to because it was so powerful. So I'd love to hear your example of that as well. Yeah, yes, I, um, I remember the very first time uh, that I did the story exchange. Uh, because my friend um, invited me to, you know, look at this. And then I, I, you know, she thought I would have passion for it you know, because of my, you know, back experience and all of that. So I attended the story exchange. And in that story exchange, actually, I experienced being, being heard. You know, and that was profound for me because probably one of the first time I actually distinguish that when I am getting a client, what, you know, and how it feels like, but I never had the, you know, the reciprocation. Uh, yes, exactly. So somebody actually getting me to, you know, at that level. 
So immediately it was just, oh wow, this is this is passion for me. So I uh, created a uh, story exchange and, and I immediately became a facilitator. Went through training, and of course you did. <laughs> story exchange, and I had ten friends that you know invited to be a part of this story exchange, and I wanted to see, you know, what would come out of it. I have one friend who was just diagnosed with cancer. This is, you know, over about two, two and a half years ago. And she participated, and she has just, you know, shaved her head, and she was going through chemo and all of that. She had such an amazing experience from that story because the person who was listening to her, who actually happened to be the person who invited me to attend the, you know, attend the story exchange, she came out of so powerful that she said, I am going to fight this. And she has such a positive, you know, upbeat attitude through the whole time. And she went through really a difficult time. Uh, so that was amazingly empowering for me. Uh, now, it's sad to say that she did pass away in December. And actually, just last weekend, I uh, attended her memorial uh, in, uh, in Arizona. But the way she you know, dealt with it from that point on, uh, it is really an example. And is, uh, you know, it can be empowering for anyone who might be dealing with such such thing when they feel that they they are being hurt and they have the support, the caring, the love, you know, the empathy and compassion. I, I think it just really makes an amazing difference. You know, Amir, what came to my head was not just that feeling of being listened to, which is just you're right. It's totally empowering to to feel that somebody is giving you their full attention and honoring that space between you is amazing and doesn't happen nearly enough. The other thing that I kind of realized in that moment was what she was also likely experiencing was that her story could contribute. That I... I I keep coming back to this idea of community and what that means and the difference between networking or a network and a community is that care. It's also that in a community, you feel like you belong when you can contribute. And I think with a diagnosis like that, oftentimes you start to think you have nothing left to contribute. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that's how uh, she left. She knew what uh, she wanted done with her body to be used for, you know, research. That no one has to deal with such thing. That hopefully someday they will come up with a with a cure. Um, the way she, you know, treated the family and friends and uh, her, um, you know, look on life. I mean, all of this is a great example of. Even though she was dealing with all these challenges, I am making a difference because I want people to be able 
to, you know, to look at cancer, it's just a cancer. It's another thing, you know, we have to deal with. But how we be about it, how we deal with it, that doesn't really impact the quality of life or, you know, you know, quality of our family and friends is the key, is important. And yes. that is beautiful. Right, because we know that our actions and our behaviors impact the people around us. Yes. There's no doubt about it. And I can I can only imagine that the pain that she experienced in the beginning and then the enlightenment, for lack of a better word, of having her story matter to somebody else. For sure. Especially a stranger. I mean, it's it's one thing if you're talking to your family and the people that are closest with you and you I think, at, at, in general, you take that for granted. I mean, some more than others, but also um, you anticipate that your story is going to matter to them. But for somebody outside of that close circle to care so deeply and feel like your story matters to them as well, I think that's really empowering. Yes. Yes. Wow. I am so glad you're doing the work you're doing. It it just it feels to me like you're really in in exactly the place that you were meant to be. And we come full circle to talking about faith and trust in whatever that the path is that you're on from being lost in a market at eight years old to having uh, an angel, basically, for lack of a better word, to guide you home because you didn't know how to get there all the way to now where you were introduced to exactly the right people in order to continue what i see in you amir is not just this work with the story exchanges but the impact of that experience on your work as a coach it's uh, kind of overwhelming how beautiful that is thank you thank you so much um it is really a, an honor to be able to make a difference. I, you know, at some point I think maybe I should retire, but this inside me says, no, why do you want to retire for? You know, I have made some uh, lessons on social media, communication lessons to help couples deal with the challenges that might arise uh, in their life. You know, I'm writing books just, you know, as passion. And my hope is that, you know, when my life is over and I'm laying in my deathbed, I don't have that sense of, what did I do with my life? Right. I didn't make the difference that, you know, I wanted to make. What am I leaving behind? So... I, really, my uh, what really brings me joy is to be a contribution, and my intention is: while I'm here, why not? Let's still you know, allow myself to be a service, to contribute, and uh, you know, when I'm gone, people want to rem remember me. Great. If they don't, it's not a big deal. But inside, I am satisfied that, you know, my life was worth living it. To live without regret and to die without regret. Absolutely. Mm. I love it. That's a perfect place to wrap up. Amir, um, 
your information will be in the show notes associated with this podcast episode at elkinsconsulting.com. So we will have some links, but would you please share with our audience some of the ways to see what you've done so far and to keep in touch and maybe connect with you? Absolutely. Um, so my website is um, coachingcollaborative.net. Uh, coachingcollaborative.net, okay. Coachingcollaborative.net. Um, and my, I, actually, I have a retreat that's coming up in Mexico. And coming up, it will be in October. This is for, you know, couples is a four and a half days of workshop and seven days of really, uh, you know, fun and conversation that will alter the relationship. And this is a promise. Uh, that is, I, you know, that is part of my website. It's called Rekindle Couples Retreat. So you know, you can um, go to rekindlecouplesretreat.net you know, or coachingcollaborative.net. Uh, and also, I have a book on Amazon. It's called Gossip: The Road to Ruin. And uh, you know, um, if you know. So I just wish to uh, look at that book. It, it is available. Um, and I can be reached on social media. Just I'm here to practice all the, you know, uh, I'll be happy to be a service, answer any questions. Anything I can do to, you know, to make a difference with, you know, with someone who might be struggling with something. Wonderful. Wonderful. Amir, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and I honor your story. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's so great to be with you and thank you so much again for having me on this podcast. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.